and welcome to Talking Who to You, a podcast dedicated to the big Finnish audio adventures of Doctor Who. My name is JG McQuarrie, and as always, I'm here with my co-host Kev Kozer. Say hello, Kev. Hi. How are you doing this week? Well, you know, I don't think I'm about to turn into a bug alien because of an infection, but you just never know. Well, if you if anybody hears clicking on the soundtrack, then you'll know that's what's happened. It'll just be your mandibles going off. But this week, <laughs> we are going to be covering uh, Project Destiny. So we're going to be doing the, the um, what is ostensibly the last part, except not quite, in the Forge story. And that means we are going to be dealing with Seventh Doctor, Ace and Hex. And Kev, would you care to give us a usual summary? All right. Project Destiny starts with... Uh... Lead in directly from the Angels Katari, a story we did not cover, <laughs> unfortunately. Uh, yeah, not I, unfortunately. Uh, yeah, okay. And um, Hex has been shot with a bullet, and the doctor takes him to St. Bart's to heal. But unfortunately, London is now under the uh, trapped by a deadly contagion that is, as alluded to earlier, turning people into bug-like aliens. Due to Xenotech that was released by the Forge, our good dear friends. <laughs> uh, the Doctor reunites with Nimrod and his uh, second-in-command, Lysandra Astrides and Aristides, I'm sorry. And um, basically, that's where everyone's sort of brought up to speed. Uh, the Doctor infects himself to try to study it, but... It starts to go awry. Hex learns about his past, where he is the son of Cassandra Schofield, who was an agent of the Forge, a.k.a. from Project Twilight, Project Lazarus. I hope you remember those stories, because, boy, are they important. He learned that Cassandra was an agent of the Forge, who's a vampire, and then Nimrod killed her from both Nimrod and the Doctor, both sides of the story. This eventually leads to a confrontation where... As the as London's being airstriked to sort of defeat destroy all the contaminants, uh, Hex confronts Nimrod, winds up resurrecting his mom somehow. <laughs> his mom kills Nimrod. Him and the Doctor escape, but then the Hex leaves, and the Doctor and Ace learn that the Time Lord coffin has been disturbed within the Forge headquarters. And I think that about covers it. There's a lot of else going on in the story. It's a lot of sound and fury, but not. I guess not a lot of story, which is what we'll talk about shortly. Okay, thank you very much. I think the fact that you were slightly struggling towards the end there might be a, a fairly apropos <laughs> comment on the story. Yeah. There, yeah, a lot of sound and fury going on here, for sure. That's definitely one way of putting it. Uh, not sure how much of it is really in service of anything. Um, yeah, I, I started the recap thing. Oh, there's so much to talk about. And then I started struggling. I was like, no, I can just skip episodes two and three, can't I? It's not... <laughs> <laughs> I wish I had that yeah. option, yeah. Um, yeah, you're right. Um, there's a lot of kind of running around uh, in episodes two and three that just doesn't particularly lead anywhere. Like episode one gets us set up and gets us sort of into the, the sort of main meat of the story such as it is. And episode four kind of gets us out the other side. But in between that, it's just a lot of people shouting things at each other. And I don't think that that makes necessarily for... Um, a terrifically engaging listen and it, it has that feel that actors are um getting louder and louder more because they're trying to inject a sense of drama that isn't necessarily there on the page um i mean yeah we we, we sort of neither of us have been particularly complimentary i don't think about the previous two forge stories that we've covered and this one isn't really going to break that pattern i don't think yeah it's 
Yeah, I mean, there's a reason we covered the last two Ford stories as just one episode, because that is all there is really to talk about them. And now we are stuck with one Ford story on its own. And I mean, that, that's just the Forge. It's a lot of uh, running around and big dramatic backstory and reveals, but they're not very substantive stories. And this is definitely no exception. Um, yeah, I think in terms of performance-wise, McCoy really equi acquits himself. I think he's, I think because he's the only one being quiet, really. <laughs> Him and uh, Stephen Chance are the only ones that really get to not be yelling the whole time. And then McCoy does get some quality yelling in. Um, he's, like, it's it's those quiet moments where he really shines, where there's the quiet fury or the trying to explain that I think uh, really highlights his uh, best assets. Yeah, it's a bit of a, it's a bit of a, smorgasbord for McCoy in this story because I agree with you the moments that he gets to be quiet the moment he gets to be effective um, work very well but there is a lot of kind of uh, particularly when he's being taken over by the virus and he's kind of struggling to maintain control it's a lot of that kind of um, shouting and, and um, rolling his R's and, and sort of I mean, you can you can sort of half picture him gurning away in the recording studio you know it's very um it's very much material that doesn't necessarily pay to his best strengths as an actor, I think it's fair to say. But it's it's such a weird contrast because those those moments kind of coexist alongside those little quiet moments, the still moments, especially the moments of compassion, the way that he understands uh, what Hex has to go through, the way that he kind of, uh, when he comes out of the coma and he sort of um, tells Ace, oh no, you did the one thing that would, was really helpful and... You get that that lovely little moment of sweet rapport between them, where her worrying is kind of all put to one side, and all those moments are great. But he does have these kind of you know evil evil from the dawn of time moments, and they just they kind of they're a bit clunky. Um, and I'm not really going to hold McCoy particularly responsible for that this time out because I don't know that there's much anybody else could do with them either. They just kind of sit there and and ask to be declaimed, and so declaim them he does. And, and the end results are, are, are not always particularly edifying. But it's a shame. I, I, I do agree. I think there are moments where, where that effectiveness comes through. And I, I just wish we'd had a little bit more of them. I think that that's true across the board. It's not just true for McCoy. A lot of people get to shout in this. And almost always when they stop, the story comes alive. And when they start, it kind of fades away again. Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of that is... I mean, unfortunately, I, I usually have a lot of praise for Aldrin and Olivier. I, that's how we agreed to pronounce it, right? Olivier, it's like Lawrence. Yeah, exactly. And now I can't remember. No, no, you're right, you're right. Uh, it's, been so long, it's been so long since we did a hex story. But yeah, I think they're they're very at sea in the story. It's because of what you said. When the yelling starts, they that's all they can really do. It's the only key they really have in the story is to just be, I mean, unfortunately, kind of whiny at the doctor. And uh, yeah, Ace and Hex do not really come off well in this. Just shouting a lot and uh, being sort of the pawns in the Doctor and Nimrod's big game and all of that. It's its a little frustrating because I love those characters. Yeah, and I think particularly with Hex, I mean, obviously we know that this is, this. Uh, we know from our perspective, let's say, this story is kind of setting up his, um, you know, big flounce off at the end of the, at the end of the episode. So one would hope that the story which is going to kind of feature that that departure would be a little bit more structured around him and whilst there is a lot of material that hex gets here he has um 
you know, a, a fair amount. It's not... He's just kind of in the story for a lot of it. And and I, actually, not even that. I mean, he's barely in the first episode because he's been um, shot and he's been taken to hospital. So he gets like a, kind of wo- a couple of woozy lines or whatever. But he's not in that first episode very much. And then once he's kind of recovered, it, it sort of picks up. But it never really feels like it's a story which is about Hex all that much, even though we're... Um, you know, we're back at St. Gart's, even though we get multiple references to the Cybermen and to, uh, you know, previous Forge stories and his mother and blah, blah, blah. And we, eventually we get to the point in episode four where, uh, you know, we get the reveal that Nimrod is going to be, you know, uh, using his blood to try and resurrect his, his, his dead mum or whatever. But by that, it's kind of too late at that. So I've, I've kind, of, yeah. kind of lost interest in that plot thread by that point, you know. Um, and so the story never really meaningfully feels like it's about Hex. And Hex comes across as kind of dumb in places here, which is a shame because that's not really what the character has been up until this point. But, I mean, it's so conspicuous to us as the audience, not just because obviously we've listened to the first two stories, but like even if you were just coming to this cold, it's so obvious that like um, Nimrod is this big evil bad guy who's bad and also evil. And, you know, in particular, the performance really <laughs> leans into that side of it as well. And it just seems, you know, after all of his experiences and everything that Hex has been through when he's been traveling with the Doctor and Ace and the TARDIS, it seems impossibly naive that he just doesn't seem to twig that he's being used or manipulated in, in some kind of way. So when the reveal comes about his mother, it kind of like, it's not that he should have seen that coming, but he should have seen something coming because you're dealing with Nimrod and he's evil and all he does is these evil, you can practically see him steepling his fingers together or clicking them together like Mr. Burns off The Simpsons, you know. It's, it's that kind of a performance and it's in abstract or in isolation. It's it's fine. It's a decent performance, but it just it's it's so it just makes Hex seem dumb that he doesn't realize that. Oh, I wonder if maybe maybe Nimrod might have another agenda, or he's manipulating me, or he's up to something. But it never comes, and so the the moment when Hex leaves doesn't land particularly because it's just none of that story has really led up been led up to it's just it's just a thing that happens 10 minutes before the end of the episode so that he has a reason to leave right and i mean the most terrible thing you can say about hex's attitude in this episode is that he's never met nimrod before but at the same time well a we the listener have so even if on a conscious level you can logic your way through it and say oh he's never met him before why shouldn't he trust him you can um like, like, it still makes him look dumb. It's like, it still works on that subconscious level, or doesn't work. And the other thing is that Stephen Chance's performance, he is just <laughs> going so hard in the I am an evil person yep. register. <laughs> and I, it's just, how does he not see it? I mean, again, that, that's more of like a meta aspect than an in-story thing. But still, it's, I mean, that that's just things you have to worry about when being a writer, being a director. you got to not make your character look like dumb when they're being manipulated by the most obviously evil person in the world. There's just that to consider. Yeah, it's 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 a strange it's a strange beat. And and um I mean we we're not one thing you can say about this story is that we're not um given too many characters 
to to sort of worry about. There's only sort of what seven characters I think in the whole piece, so there's plenty of space for um, some really good scenes, but we just never really seem to get them particularly. Um, even even the relationship um, between Hex and Ace doesn't particularly feel like it's being given much space. They don't certainly don't spend much kind of time together ace is off doing kind of very kind of bog standard military kind of dour um you know stamping about the place and 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 hex is off being dumb and not seeing what's what's right in front of him um and so that would have been another way of kind of playing up the nature of his departure at the end of the story if there's this really kind of like rock solid um sort of well we've talked about it before you know this kind of brother sister thing that they have going on um, this kind of familial thing, which is such a pleasant change from kind of will they, won't they? You know, if if that had been leaned into and we'd we'd spent some time re-establishing the nature of that relationship or what they mean to each other, how it matters, then when Ace gets the big no, no, Doctor, you must stop him from leaving kind of speech at the end of episode four, again, it would it would land much better because we would spend time within that relationship. But again, it's like. It feels like at the end of episode four, Ace says, "No, no, Doctor, let's let's stop Hex from leaving, because that's what she's supposed to do." We're, I, there's no this story doesn't in any way invest in the relationship between them to make that kind of scene land, and it's a shame because Philip Oliver and and Sophie Aldred have a really good rapport and they do do the the the, the brother sister thing very well and also without it just becoming creepy it's it, that's a rare thing you know it they, they have such a nice easy going kind of teasing relationship and we get almost none of that in this story so that feels like another kind of thing that's missing yeah i it's like the one thing i seem to regret that we are like wrapping up the doctor who version of this podcast um and it's that we're not going to get many more eight good days. I mean, we'll get one more, exactly one more before we wrap it up. Uh, that's the one thing the story maybe do is really want to get in the death of the family. The uh, listeners, I mean, we, we're not doing it next week, but we will. We're, I mean, we're saving the best for last. That's what I, the hint I'll give you. <laughs> but um, yeah, that's the sort of the reason why we're sort of wrapping it up, isn't it? Because Big Finish is about to enter its now decade plus long slump era, and it's. Uh, there's not many good Ace and Hex stories from here on out after Death in the Family. So it's just, yeah, I, I miss their early relationship where they were just this much more playful brother and sister where it was invested in there and it wasn't just the high drama of it all. They were just such an easygoing uh, twosome and companions in the TARDIS. It was really great. And yeah, I don't know. I mean, I still think the care and the love comes through, but you're right. It's just drowned by all of this soap opera stuff. And I, I, I feel almost regretful using soap opera as a negative. It, it can be very fun in the right circumstances, but if done badly like here, it's just twists for the sake of twists, drama for the sake of drama. Yeah, I mean, Doctor Who can work very well in the soap opera register. And, and even, even these iterations of the the show can work well in that register but that's just not what we what we get here and i just find i don't want to like 
we were talking just before we started recording, and I described this as the last, um, the last of our contractual obligation stories, which which it is. It's the last one we kind of need to cover because, well, as you as you said, it leads directly into death in the family. Um, so we kind of have to do this one, but it really does lean hard on that kind of yeah contractual obligation thing because it, it's just I don't know. I, I want to like this story i want to try and appreciate what it's doing but there's so little that it does that we haven't just already seen it's not even necessarily that it does it um badly as such you know there's 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 a sense of momentum in places um nobody's bad here all the performances are basically fine um but it's just all stuff we've kind of seen before and also pretty much assembled in a way we've seen before as well and that just kind of it makes it a bit i don't want to say dull but that's really the only adjective i can think of it makes it a bit dull and it's just you know all that kind of military stamping about the place it's just all i mean even if you want to put all the kind of ace stuff to one side, even if you want to put the new adventures to one side, even if you want to put the seventh doctor's era to one side, you know, it's, it's, it's just straight up kind of like, yeah, Eric Sayward kind of, um, military dourness. And it's just not very interesting. We get this image of, um, a deserted London, which has the potential to be kind of really compelling and interesting. And this kind of, empty city but we then don't spend any time exploring that setting either you know we spend most of our time sort of messing about in St. Gart's or, or whatever we don't really we don't get any sense of the space or there's I think Ace gets one line at one point about um, how she suddenly realizes what the scale of the evacuation of London must have been like and it, it, it has that it's one of those lines that has that feeling um, that, you know, um, the author, uh, or in this case, authors, plural, uh, Mark Wright and Kevin Scott, have realised that this is something that should be addressed, but haven't in any way written it into the story. And so instead, they've just given Ace a line going, ooh, that must have been a big thing to do. And then just quietly moved on, say, ah, that'll do, that'll cover it, you know. So it's, it's you know, there's a lot of those kind of moments in, in this play. Yeah, it is, like, there's... It is a shame that they focus so much on the sort of impersonal um, relationships, which is not something I'd normally say. But, like, the all the stuff with the contaminants and stuff, I mean, I guess there's not much there because it is just sort of like every other zombie movie. That's kind of the problem. There's, <laughs> there's no investment in there. It's just like every other zombie movie. Yeah. It's people become infected, they change, and then there's a little bit different where they become bug aliens instead of shambling, walking dead. But otherwise, it's just... Yeah, it's just not much thought put into it. And then when it's fine to wrap up the story, it's like, ah, oh, just, just bomb them all. Let's just wipe them off. We, we're done with this, and we can't like leave London in this state. So, yeah, it's yeah, it's just so frustrating and how it's just so little thought is put into them as the bad, the sort of, the stompy, stompy bad guys as opposed to the bad guys that can talk. And, um, yeah, I, it's just such a frustrating story from that angle. It's there's not much care put into all of the world building, all of the big implications, the big swings that it does. This is a lot. This is my big pet peeve with these kinds of Doctor Who stories. I, I brought up like way back when we we're talking about Terra Firma. That's always the one I uh, 
first associate with this, where the whole Earth has been wiped out by Daleks except for one city. And oh, we're supposed to do more Doctor Who after this? The stakes are supposed to be high in other episodes? And that's sort of the same thing here, where it's like a whole city has been wiped off the map, and then a Doctor Who story set in 2027 will just have London the same as usual. And you can't do those big swings and expect to have a solid continuity. Even a show as continuity-light as Doctor Who, it just raises too many questions. No, well, it does. And I think, um, I mean, I think it's an interesting point that you make about the world building here, because I think that's kind of what I was getting at about this whole kind of deserted London thing when I was talking before as well. There isn't any investment in it. And I don't think in this case it's because this is the third story in a sequence about the forge, because the the previous two stories we had um, also didn't do much of a job when it came to doing uh, you know the heavy lifting in terms of world building, and um, and that world building would really help to kind of give some substance to what's going on. I, I mean, you're absolutely correct when you say this is just like any other zombie movie. And it really doesn't matter what it is that the transformation is, whether it's zombies or insects or vampires or, or whatever the hell it is <laughs> where people are turned into. Just pick something from a random deck of, of cards of, of, you know, things people turn into in sci-fi. And, and, you know, that'll do. And there's just, yeah, there's just there's a lack of care. I think there's a lack of detail in, in the world that we have. And like I said, it's not because the world has been built up from the the previous two stories. It's just, I mean, it's just London. It shouldn't be that hard to get a sense of scale or a sense of scope or a sense of place or any of these kind of things. Um, but we just don't have it. Um, and there's no... I'd be surprised if London is not the most used contemporary location in all of Doctor Who, especially if you're kind of factoring in like the original show and, and, and the sort of unit stories or whatever. Um, unit gets name-checked a couple of times here as in the most perfunctory manner. But, oh, I, Unit will turn up and sort it out. It'll be fine. It could not be more perfunctory. Um, and I think that's kind of the word for a lot of how this setup is is put together how a lot of the um the environment is constructed it's just very perfunctory we're expected to, it's, all, it's all very well to use a shortcut and i don't want to suggest that that's not the case because of course it is and doctor who uses shortcuts all the time of course it does that's normal um and so we don't need to spend a, a huge amount of time explaining kind of transmogrifications when somebody gets infected or whatever because that's just what happens that could be what happens in um, zombie movies or it could be what happens in the arc in space or whatever it, it doesn't matter that so that kind of stuff is okay to gloss over we don't need to go into excruciating detail over that but just like the basics of your setup or the basics of the environment i mean um it's just not good enough to say oh well um we're in 2026 now so we can just and th that's another thing like all the nods to the fact that this is sort of i mean even from our perspective when we're recording this the near future kind of setup is is very it all, basically all they do is say oh and we're in 2026 now and that's it there's just no effort but i think we get one reference like euro harriers or something and that's about as far as the near future world building goes <laughs> it's, it's incredibly sort of um uh, we just, just just take our word for it everyone it's, it's definitely 2026 now yeah they're kind of pinned into it because they 
the hex starts in 2021 because he has to because well here's something that will make that will probably be a shock uh project twilight came out in 2001 20 years ago now wow and um yeah and but because that we have to have hex be an infant when that story is taking place they have to set he has to be an adult 20 years in the future in 2021 that's when the harvest written in 2004 has to take place and so there, that's what sort of pins them in with this whole grand plan with Hex. But, yeah, on the other hand, and that, that sort of gets to my point. I, by, by the way, isn't that weird to think about that? Um, the events of The Harvest took place about two months ago as we're recording this. Wow, yeah, that, that's, that's, that's a statement, yeah. isn't it? <laughs> yeah, the 2004's far future of 2021. Yeah, anyways. <laughs> um with the, I mean, I'm not even 30 and I feel old. So how about, I can't imagine for you. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Kenneth. <laughs> yes. Okay. Yeah. Moving on. <laughs> moving on. But that's, the point is, that's right. Project Twilight 2001, Project Destiny 2010. Nine years of uh, this sort of plot simmering in the background. The Forge, Hex, everything. And it feels like you said, contractual obligation. It's just... Well, we gotta get Hex and Nimrod in the same room and yelling at each other and revealing everything. But it's not; it doesn't feel grand and epic. It's not the Avengers Endgame of Big Finish Seventh Doctor audios. It's just, all right, we gotta get to this eventually, and we gotta do it soon. <laughs> it's been long enough, so here it is. It's uh, Thor: The Dark and, yeah, World of the Big Finish. <laughs> yeah. Oh God. Yeah, it's just. I don't know. Maybe maybe death in the family is actually the better pin in all of it. But this does wrap up a lot of uh, forge stuff, and it it's the end of the forge. Nimrod is not even despite his grand proclamations. I never die. I'll come back. He never does. Uh, oh, Kevin Scott gets a <laughs> Kevin Scott gets a very cushy gig writing Star Wars extended universe instead. And I don't really know what Mark Wright's up to, but um, it's yeah, it's uh just kind of deflating it's um not that great of an ending to what's supposed to be this big long simmering epic story and it's really like you said just people yelling at each other the whole time i think i was more positive this movie before we started talking about it but (laughs) i think that's might be because it is pace i mean hard to say it's paced well when like i said the middle two episodes don't matter but at least action is happening all the time this isn't one of the big finish stories where it really grinds to a halt in many places at least there's always some sort of threat happening and i do like the gimmick where every episode starts a day or two days later like it's big cliffhanger and then you have to catch up and there's a little bit of fun in like oh what putting the pieces together but yeah in terms of what actually happens happens it's just so thin yeah yeah, it's funny how the Forge just never managed to get beyond its own existence. That's <laughs> a funny way of putting it, I realise. But um, it's just it just never really became very compelling. And I think at least part of that is because I think to an extent Nimrod is just also not very compelling as a character. So William Everton, if you will, in, in this story... Um, and again, I'm kind of, I'd love to give uh, Stephen Chance too much of a ding 
in terms of what he's doing with the performance because I think he's probably playing it the only way that he can. We've kind of we kind of brushed up a little bit earlier talking about his performance, but sort of sort of getting into the meat of it. I think he is playing it as the big evil baddie because I don't really think that there's any other way that you could land this script. And and again, to be fair, like I think Project Twilight and Project Lazarus were exactly the same. And he was given the same, you know, slightly um how can I put this? Uh, slightly over the top uh, kind of villain writing as well, and and you know when you're faced with that, I mean, what what else is he supposed to do? I mean, there's a very limited amount you can do when you're just literally being written as this big evil thing, and I think going for kind of like the full Mr. Burns is is probably about the only viable route a performer could take. I don't think this role would be any better if it was being played by anybody else or if it was being delivered more subtly. I mean, this isn't a subtle script. It's not a it's not a script which calls for that. And, you know, anything anything smaller would probably just be drowned out by, by, by what surrounds it. Um, maybe a few quieter moments, as we were saying earlier, might have been nice to sort of um, give us some break from the kind of um, the evil, 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 evilness of evil that he he's kind of stuck having to deliver, uh, and I, I, you know, that's kind of a problem. If 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 Nimrod is going to be like the the, the face of this, you know, amoral, you know, uh, organization that that steals Xenotech in order to, um, you know, exploit it, you need to have a compelling presence front and center of that, and. None of the three project uh, project colons have managed to find a way of making Nimrod be that presence, and so yeah, the whole kind of forge thing just feels like it's um, it just kind of just kind of drains away. It just never feels compelling. And again, like I say, I, I'm not going to give a, a, a big ding here. Uh, I mean, in terms of the performance, but. Um, Project Lazarus is probably the best, I think, of the three stories. I think that's probably fair to say. But even then, it it the it just does suffer from this this lack of uh, some kind of central figure to pull it into focus. It's all very well talking talking about amoral scientists and and evil people who only want to exploit. But you know, I mean. They're a dime a dozen. You're not you're not coming up short when you're looking for evil organizations who do bad stuff with alien tech and Doctor Who. There's thousands of them, um, kind of up to and including Unit at this point. Let's be honest. So it's just not that's not enough. And because there's nothing else to kind of drag it into focus, the whole kind of Forge CI nine thing just sort of it peters out in the least kind of spectacular manner possible. The Forge, I mean, the whole thing exists to do vampires in Doctor Who, mm. which has already also been done in Doctor Who. <laughs> but yeah, it just sort of spiraled out from there. And you're right, it's just such an unoriginal concept. I mean, granted, it does beat Torchwood to the punch, but I would say, I mean, Rusty Davies' Torchwood wasn't even that original in the first place. It, yeah, you're right, there's just so many of them. It's And it's just not that compelling at all. And especially by 2010, it's just, what are we doing here? Why is it the forge what justifies it being the forge it's yeah it's just such a hack concept at this point and that's that's honestly the issue with doctor who where you just have to keep reinventing and you 
it's just done. It's the whole franchise has cycled through so many tropes at this point. Um, yeah, that's just kind of the bind you have to be in, and uh, that is. And we'll talk about it more in a couple episodes, but I mean that might be why Flux works because it's just it's really throwing stuff at the wall and going to interest more interesting places. And as much as I hate the timeless child stuff, at least that is an attempt to do something different. This is just rehashing the same old, same old that has always been done before. And yeah, it's just not gonna work it's just not gonna fly no no it's not and and there's nothing else in this story that really um can can pull focus that's the thing the the character work isn't given any depth there's not a lot of time i mean none of the characters actually spend that much time together it's not like the doctor and ace have a lot of time that they spend together either i was mentioning earlier that ace and hex don't get to spend much time together but um the doctor and ace don't get to spend that much time together either so there's no great sense of that um relationship you know this is going to sound incredibly trivial and 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 a bit snarky but uh, oh well here we go um i was just looking at the covers um for the all three of the project colon um box sets or uh, sorry releases <laughs> box set god help us no we don't want to forge box set <laughs> um, please don't, don't don't listen to me big fetish um and um Project Lazarus has on its cover the um, Sixth Doctor and Seventh Doctor, and it's the Seventh Doctor from the 1996 TV movie. And um, Project Destiny has um, Sylvester McCoy uh, in, in his kind of TV incarnation. And Project Twilight has Colin Baker in the multicolored coat of, of wonderfulness. And Project Lazarus has Colin Baker in this kind of blue version of that costume. It's just a mess. And it's, it's just... Right. Well, pay attention. Just get these things right. These, these are pretty basic details. So it's a, I don't know. I, I, I don't know. It's just like... It, yeah. Sorry, go on. Yeah, I mean, Project Twilight, I think it's supposed to be... And there's a reference in here about how the Seventh Doctor part of that story... Or sorry, Project Lazarus, Seventh Doctor part of that story, um, takes place at the closer to the end after Ace and Hex, and then he has like, oh, don't tell me about my future. But, like, uh, why? <laughs> yeah, what does that achieve? Why does, that's, why that's does Project Lazarus have to take? <laughs> why does Project Lazarus have to take place later and then make it convoluted like this? I mean, I, I totally get why this has to take place during the Ace and Hex era, because it's Hex is who it revolves around. But, uh, I mean, I guess, and maybe they wrote Project Lazarus, they didn't really have the full scope of what they're going to do. And I, I can't remember if there's a, re a direct reference in Lazarus to it being a late Seventh Doctor story in that era. There might be of him being, oh, it's been so long since I've seen it, Hayes, or whatever. But, um, yeah, it's, you're right, it just feels so haphazard to be jumping on a Seventh Doctor's timeline like this just to make everything work. It is, yeah, it's just not very uh, good. It's just not, <laughs> it's this nine years in the making story that just wasn't really thought through. And I mean, maybe it wasn't, I, I don't know. There's not enough behind the scenes finish, big finish stuff at least that I've listened to that really goes into where these showrunning decisions are coming from and when they sort of are thought up of thought up. But um, yeah, it's so 
yeah, I'm, I'm just repeating myself now. It's just kind of a mess, and that's not really what you want to do with this sort of long-term storytelling. Yeah, and, and unfortunately, I don't really know that I have an awful lot else to say about this story beyond that, yeah. um, which is kind of, you know, disappointing in a way. Like, I don't, there's, there's not much story. There's not an awful lot to say. We haven't talked about... Uh, I guess we should mention Ingrid Oliver is in this. Yeah. Um. So we've done. Ingrid Oliver is in this. We've done that. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I I like Oracle. I think it's like a fun to have an AI with like limited intelligence, and it's it's I, maybe it's just more fun to have the characters like conversationally talk to the AI. That's just a trope I really like, where the AI isn't necessarily fully human. It's more of a, I guess in modern time you'd call it an Alexa or whatever, but um they're still like it can maintain a little bit of conversation and i think that's a very fun sweet spot for me um i guess also mentioned that lysandra asks oh my god i can't believe i listened to the story this morning and i can't remember how to pronounce her name aristides there we go um like she goes on to do some other later some other stuff i never really finished the black and white arc so i don't know what she does later on i just it's just on the wiki and i mean she is one of the more interesting characters in the story there's a bit of complexity to her when she's not just shouting and shooting her gun. But, uh, yeah, that's kind of it. Yeah, I mean, that's it. <laughs> exactly. I don't, I don't, I have nothing else to add to what you just said. And that seems like a perfect place to finish as we've very clearly run out of things to say. So, um, yeah, I think we can probably leave it there for this one and move on to recommendations. So, Kev, what have you got for us this week? Uh, I'm going to, I first want to shout out, uh, if I was doing recommendations that were at all relevant to the story we're talking about, I'd be smart to talk about Star Wars The High Republic, which is this big multimedia thing that Kevin Scott is a major hand in, because I mean he wrote this and he's writing that. I'll probably do a more detailed recommendation on that later, but it's it's so hard to keep up with all of it, too, is the problem. But his writing on that's pretty good. So, yeah, check out his Star Wars work if you want to listen to the good side of Kevin Scott. And again, I don't know what Mark Wright's up to. He, doesn't Doctor Who vaguely hints at other credits beyond Doctor Who, but the TARDIS wiki doesn't really obviously go into them, and I can't really find information on them online, so there you go. But my actual recommendation, which is, I guess, time better because it's timely to the release of this podcast, is uh, the recent Disney movie, Encanto, uh, from Walt Disney Animation Studios. I think this is their best musical since the 90s. And I don't know how much of a hot take that is. I think other people who have seen it are sort of coming around to it, even if apparently not many people have seen it, probably probably for COVID reasons. Kids are just now getting vaccinated. And yeah, it's it's probably just not going to make a dent in the box office and be discovered on Disney+. Plus and people will go, oh, this is a really good one. Because <laughs> it is a really good one. I mean, if you're a fan of the Disney musical and you also have to be a fan of Lin-Manuel Miranda, which I know is like... 90% of the world adores him, and then that 10% loathes him. So if you're not in that 10%, uh, this is the movie for you. It's His music is amazing, but also it's a, such a fantastic story. It's about this family uh, in Colombia who managed to seclude themselves to the world through, as they use in the movie, a miracle that creates this sort of secluded village for them to live in and sort of preside over as uh, these... I guess, benefactors to the, you know, so these other extras around. Their story isn't much part of. The family at the top of the food chain is where we focus on. The other catch is that each member of the family has some sort of magical gift. Um, the grandmother who sort of founded the village presides over her two daughters. One controls the weather. The other can heal people. 
there is another brother played by John Leguizamo who can see the future, who has disappeared. That's a very fun plot hook. And then her, and then there's a whole series of grandchildren, which the opening number does great care to get you caught up on the all the different characters in this. But the focus of the story is Mirabelle, one of the grandchildren, who was the only one who didn't get a power and is sort of lost. Like, what is my purpose in this family? How can I help? And she gets a sort of portent that the magic of the house is starting to disappear. And as cracks begin to form and the powers of the other families begin to weaken, she just sort of figures out what's happening. It's not a road trip movie. It's not a big, it's a kind of a quest, but not really a linear one. And I think that's such a good change of pace for Disney. It's just a story that takes place in one location and just kind of unfurls itself from the character interactions and one step to the next from there. I had no idea where the story was going any step of the way. And I was delighted by that. After so many Disney and Pixar movies that are so programmatically laid out, I feel, where it's like, well, then, of course, the princess finds her love and there's a meet cute and they da-da-da-da-da. Or, of course, the two brothers or two friends go on a road trip as a checklist and da-da-da-da-da. I'm specifically subtweeting onward there. But it's definitely a lot of them. There's a lot of Disney... There's tropes that Disney uses that are, of course, they use them. It's Disney, and it's a long tradition. But what I love about Encanto is it avoids most of them. It feels like a very original story. And it's so much about these family dynamics, each character interacting with the others. It's a unique relationship. And it digs into so many of these very real sort of family things. Uh, I don't think it's much of a spoiler. There's no real villain to the story. It really is just about a family dealing with its baggage. And it does that in a very dramatic and satisfying way. It's, yeah, it just has that nice contained spirit with these amazing songs and amazing musical numbers. The visuals, the musical numbers get very, I think, experimental might be too heavy of a way to put it, but definitely strange. There's uh the classic I want song is done entirely with all the other characters freezing as Mirabelle just does her little soliloquy. And it's a very beautiful moment. And there's other songs that like, you know, I mean, you have like your Hercules, Zero to Hero, your Moana, you're welcome, where you get a little more experimental to the animation. A couple of the n- numbers do it in this one. And it's fantastic. And the colors are bright and great. The acting is superb. The singing is superb. It's just all around. I had a great time with it. I think it's, yeah, like I said, the best musical since the 90s, one of their best ones in years. It really is a special, special movie. And yeah, I hope more people, if you're in that sort of Disney fandom and you should, but you haven't checked it out yet, you should definitely check it out. It's by far one of the better ones. Fantastic. Thank you very much. Um, yeah, as I, I believe I've mentioned myself, I, I, I'm not the world's biggest musical fan. Um, but yeah, it sounds like a, a, a great recommendation. Um, we're, we're staying with the world of music uh, for my recommendation. Uh, and it will probably surprise, uh, surprise absolutely nobody that what I'm going to recommend is uh, Get Back, which is the uh, Peter Jackson Beatles uh, documentary stroke document which has uh, been aired at time of release. All three episodes have been released now um, on Disney+. Um, and it's, uh, I'm sure probably everybody knows, but just very briefly, it's uh, 
you know, it's basically just footage from the time that the Beatles were rehearsing in uh, Twickenham and in Apple Studios for what was supposed to be a TV special, but actually ended up with the sort of um, famous concert on the roof of Apple Studios itself. Um, and it is unbelievably good. It's just stunning. Now, you might expect me to say that, given that I also co-host the Beatles podcast. Um, but it's incredibly compelling. Firstly, just purely on a technical level, the quality of the footage which they have uh, available to them is remarkable. They're just purely for, for the sake of um, archiving and sort of restoring this film, uh, Peter Jackson and his team deserve an absolutely staggering amount of credit. It's an amazing sort of technical achievement. It, it, and you often hear people say stuff when, when um, film is restored or when audio is restored. You go, oh, it, you know, it could have been filmed yesterday or it could have been recorded yesterday. But honestly, it really does look like that. It's unbelievably vivid. Um, which is not always a good thing, given just how unspeakably hideous a lot of the fashions are. But nevertheless, it, the, the footage, just for all eight hours of it, looks amazing. It is breathtakingly uh, well restored. And it's just... it, it met, the, the quality of the restoration really helps to kind of lean into the, the sort of verisimilitude of it, to the, that feeling that you're kind of there and you're watching this kind of legendary band grow apart, write, try and keep things on the rails, all the kind of stuff that, that you would expect. It's, it's genuinely just really fascinating. I think even if you're not a big um, fan of the Beatles, even if you're just interested in the sort of like, if you have any interest in the creative process or the way that creative people work together, I think it's a really compelling Documents, and I use the word document rather than documentary uh, advisedly. I don't really think that this, I mean, it's not a documentary in any kind of traditional sense. There's a little bit of narrative uh, text on screen to give a little bit of context to what you're watching, but it's not a documentary in the sense that people are interviewed or there's any attempt at kind of historical or cultural placement. It's literally, it's just the footage itself. And I think I really feel that that's the right approach to taken with this material it's 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 compelling in its own right but it makes it a document not a documentary um so if you're going into it expecting a, a traditional documentary you're going to come out disappointed but it is an utterly riveting kind of document of the process that the band went through um during that time and there are really um amazing moments in it and there are frustrating moments in it but I think one of the big advantages I know it's one of the things that's been criticized for is the runtime it's eight hours all in which is a lot of footage for by any stretch of the imagination but I think it I think using that footage using the length of that is what makes it be able to tell a more kind of accurate story because um, particularly when it comes to somebody like John Lennon, he's he can be very funny and charming. Uh, he's a very winning presence through a lot of it. He's larking around and joking and keeping people's spirits up and all the rest of it. Um, and in small, isolated bursts of the kind that you would get in a traditional documentary, it's charming, it's nice, it's, it's funny. But if you have to watch it across a span of hours and not minutes, it becomes really tiresome and a bit desperate. And that actually, in the end, is a much 
more accurate, I would say, portrayal of the individual than just, you know, like a few funny jokes or somebody goofing off or, or lurking around or whatever. So that kind of constant inability to turn it off and just get on with stuff it becomes incredibly frustrating. So it makes it much easier to understand why other members of the band might eventually have just got pissed off with them and had enough. And, you know, it's just that, just give it a rest already. But you wouldn't get that effect if you, this was just like an hour and a half documentary or a two hour documentary and everything was cut down. So it really needs, there's loads of other examples, but that's, that's just one of them. But it really needs that extra space so that you get a much better sense of, of what's going on. And that's, I think, the biggest kind of achievement of, of Get Back. So that's my recommendation this week. It's, it's really compelling stuff and I, I highly recommend it for anybody who's interested in yeah like I said in the, in the creative process or in the way that people work in that kind of environment yeah I, I am very interested I just I mean I had the fortune of being with family at the time that I don't usually see rather than my usual family and um yeah it was just uh I was busy doing that instead of watching the Beatles and so now I have to wait till the uh holidays December holidays come around catch the next a long break for work to sit with like eight hours and just watch uh, footage. It's a lot. It but, is a lot. There's, there's yeah. no doubt about it. But yeah, I'm, I'm very much looking forward to it for sure. Fantastic. Good stuff. Well, I think we can probably wrap it up there for now. Kev, would you could tell people how they can get in touch with us? All right. Uh, yeah. Uh, we are on Twitter at talking who to you. I am on Twitter at Kev Kozer, K E V K O E S E R. Uh, and I also am a frequent guest on the action movie podcast Total Massacre. I talked about Shang-Chi on there recently, and I that will probably come out around the same time, if hopefully already, is on the Total Massacre feed. Uh, JG's writings at www.jgmcquarrie.scott, J-G-M-C-Q-U-A-R-R-I-E.scott, and his side project is Beatles Stuffology. That's his podcast where he and his friend, uh, I'm forgetting his name. Andrew Deacon. I should remember that because I've listened to every episode. But Andrew <laughs> D can talk about Beatles songs one by one. Fantastic. Thank you very much. Well, we will leave it there for this episode. Next time round, we are going to be moving, as we do uh, towards the end of the podcast, we are going to be moving in towards the final season of Paul McGann's Eighth Doctor, which means we are going to be talking about death in Blackpool. And as always, we hope you're going to join us for it. But until then, keep talking. Thank you.